All right, keep our team in prayer as they're in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. Had a couple pictures up there earlier of uh, the base camp and Carla doing. Can you go back to the first picture? Yeah, is it up there? Yeah, that's Carla in the kitchen. They'll be eating breakfast burritos before soon, I'm sure. But uh, they're doing a lot of uh, food service this week. When they got there, uh, there were a lot of people at the base camp. There was a group from Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa and another large group from Calvary Chapel of Chino Hills. And uh, those groups have all left now. And so tomorrow through Saturday, it'll just be the 22 from Visalia and Hanford. And uh, they've been doing a lot of food service. They're serving about right this week. They're serving about 2000 meals a day, uh, three meals, you know, on a three meals to the people who come. And so it's 2000 meals total. So they're pretty much involved with that. Although Monday and Tuesday, I think they were doing some home construction. And so there's just a number of things that are going on back there and anxious to have them come back. I guess it's pretty, uh, pretty devastating back there still. Uh, from and you've got the little flyer handout I gave you, Zach's email, but uh, uh, I don't think they were really prepared for it to be quite as disastrous. But this little place that they're at, Bay St. Louis, is only a few miles from the Gulf of Mexico, and they took a pretty bad beating uh, from the hurricane. And, and uh, so lots of neat uh, stuff going on back there. Uh, we're trying to get together another trip for February 13th. We've got three or four people interested and signed up for that. So. Pray about that. So, and keep the team in prayer. Uh, uh, obviously, they uh, they need your prayers. They feel your prayers. And uh, if you want to know who's on the team, it's on that paper as well. All right, we're studying the book of Ruth. We're in chapter four tonight. That's where we find ourselves. So, if you open your Bible there, Ruth chapter four. Those of you who are new or haven't been with us for the entire study of Ruth, I'll do a little bit of a recap tonight so you can get caught up. Tonight we're going to see Boaz take his courtship into court. He was in love with Ruth, but his love could not disregard God's law. God's law made sure that a dead man's family name did not die with him and that his property was not sold outside of his own tribe. The law of the kinsman redeemer is what we're talking about. It's found in Leviticus chapter 25. And the law governing the marriage of widows is found in Deuteronomy 25. Under these laws, the closest living male blood relative had the first responsibility to redeem a mortgaged estate and to remarry the widow of his deceased brother. Now, this was their legal system. A citizen from Bethlehem named Elimelech His wife, Naomi, and their two sons had moved to Moab during a famine. It was a bad move. They should have just stuck it out in the land of promise. The boys named Malon and Chilion, not very popular names anymore uh, for obvious reasons. They married Moabite girls, Ruth and Orpah. Soon both father and sons died, leaving three widows. The stress and strain of her years in Moab had forced Naomi to mortgage her deceased husband's property. Upon her return to Bethlehem, she was in no position to redeem the property herself. She came back a destitute widow with only a daughter-in-law. Upon her return, she couldn't redeem the property. So the two sons of Elimelech were the natural heirs to the estate. If either one had left a son, he would have inherited the estate. They did not leave a son, so under Jewish law, the wives could 
pass the estate on to any child born to them by a kinsman redeemer of the family of Elimelech. Orpah had remained in Moab, forfeiting her right to the estate of her deceased husband. Ruth returned with Naomi and therefore had a claim upon the estate by virtue of her marriage to her dead husband, Malon. Any near relative who acted to redeem the estate must marry Ruth and produce a child who would be the legal owner of the land. It all sounds very uh, different, uh, pleasantly so, uh, to us. But this is how they did things in the tribal culture of Israel, and it worked for them. Now, Boaz was a near kinsman. But in chapter 3, when we were there, he told Ruth, there is a kinsman nearer than I. He was in love with Ruth, but his love could not disregard God's law. Someone else had a rightful claim on the property and on the widow. So he took his courtship into court, put himself completely under the law in order to overcome the obstacle of the law and to fulfill his love. And I'm putting it in terms that are metaphoric so that you can see that Boaz is a type of Jesus Christ. We've seen that his throughout the book that Boaz's love for Ruth is a type of Christ's love for you and I. Chapter four is just like that. He Boaz put himself completely under the law in order to overcome the obstacle of the law and fulfill his love. Jesus Christ in his incarnation, coming as a man through the virgin birth, put himself completely under the law in order to overcome the obstacle of the law and fulfill his love for you. In Galatians chapter four, you read this. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so the book of Ruth is telling this doctrine of redemption in this beautiful love story, reminding us that redemption is about God's love for us. It's not just a cold, uh, judicial, legal matter. It's a matter of the heart. It's a passionate matter of God's love for us. And so we begin. Boaz had spoken to Ruth about the obstacle of the law. There was a closer kinsman. He said about overcoming it. And so verse one. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. In ancient times, the city gate was the official court where judicial business was transacted in the presence of elders. Uh, Boaz went to court, hailed the near kinsman, and assembled ten witnesses. So this is all very legal. This is all very standard practice of their day. Uh, it's, you know, it's not unlike if you're wandering around the county government center lost, which I always am when I'm there trying to find whatever office I'm looking for, and a bailiff walks out and says, you're on the jury now because they have to, you know, the, they don't have enough members of the jury and, and, and those kinds of things. And so the, Boaz went to the city gate. Chances are this near relative had some inkling of what was going on as well. And so they get together and they're going to solve this matter once and for all. Verse three. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech, meaning she mortgaged it, that it was being held uh, in uh, mortgage. And I thought to inform you, saying, 
Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Oh, Ooh. this is bad. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, Oh, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And so Boaz is shrewd. He's a very shrewd bargainer. He holds out the promise of the property, which is very attractive. Uh, And then he, he kind of hammers the guy at the end saying, Okay, oh, by the way, you have to also marry Ruth. Now, the property was attractive to the kinsman, but the prospect of marriage to Ruth was not. What he means here about his own inheritance is that he already had children and marriage to Ruth might jeopardize their future inheritance. The fact that Elimelech, Malon and Chilion had all died in Moab might have also discouraged him from having anything to do with this Moabite wife. I mean, Ruth didn't... uh, Naomi and Ruth didn't really come back with a great reputation. I mean, Naomi had gone down there with a husband and two sons and uh, they got married and those guys all died. And there was a sense that we talked about of God's judgment upon them for their disobedience. And you weren't even really supposed to marry Moabite women in the first place. So this was kind of a, a cursed family from the point of view of the Jews. And so when this guy started to think it through, uh, you know, he, he could figured out that he really didn't need the property that bad. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it stated, and I quote, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And so there was a a lot of strong reason for him to not want to enter into this transaction. And at this point, he would be happy that, uh, well, were it not for Boaz, he would have to do this. I mean, it was incumbent upon one of these guys to to re-get this, regain this property and perform the rights of, of the brother, the Leverite marriage and all. And so now this guy was thrilled. He was happy. He was out of the way and, and uh, Boaz could take over. And so whatever combination of reasons he had, the nearer relative refused his right of acting as a kinsman redeemer and pressed upon Boaz to do the redeeming. Now, this was the custom, verse 7, in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. This is why it took us so long to buy property in Hanford, because we kept handing people sandals and they didn't understand. We, we wanted to do everything biblically. We wanted to be really biblically based, and finally we came to the Baptist church and gave them our sandal and now that <laughs> they gave us a kick with it. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, it's, it's interesting, these, these customs. Um, Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, 
I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. The custom of removing the sandal probably relates to God's commandment to walk on the land and take possession of it. Uh, Removing the sandal indicated a refusal to walk on the land that was being offered. In years to come, the ten witnesses would be able to testify that the transaction had been completed because they saw the nearer kinsman hand his sandal to Boaz. Uh, you know, it's, it's goofy, but I like it. I think it's colorful. I mean, we need to have more... I think we should have more flair in our judicial system. What do you think? You know, just We need a little bit more excitement and thrill and symbolism. But uh, maybe not. I don't know. He had forfeited his rights under the law to walk in the land of Elimelech. Boaz is now free to act as the kinsman redeemer and marry Ruth, who, who we know by this point he loves. I mean, he has a deep uh, love for her. He wants to marry her. He's not just going through this as a duty. Verse 11, And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Epaphrath and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. And so everybody seems pretty happy about this. There's a lot of, uh, you know, congratulatory statements and blessings and pulling out from the history of Israel and all this. Boaz's love for Ruth was evident to all the citizens of Bethlehem, but so was the legal status of this nearer kinsman. And the people now could rejoice because love had triumphed within the law. They had witnessed more than a legal transaction. They had witnessed the Lord's transaction. The Lord's hand in this attested to by the examples they cited from Israel's past. There seemed to be a sense among the people that something more was going on here uh, than, than just the average legal transaction. And they were very excited about it. For example, in Jacob's marriage to Leah and Rachel... The law was preferred over love. In Tamar's relationship to Judah, the law was deferred because there was no love. But in Boaz's love for Ruth, love triumphed within the law in a marvelous manifestation of God's grace. Jacob was in love with Rachel. You remember the story from the Old Testament. He agreed with her father Laban that he would work for her seven years in marriage before they could get married. And, and they seemed that they just the time flew by. He was so in love with Rachel. But on their wedding night, Laban tricked Jacob and gave him his oldest daughter, Leah, as his wife. A uh, combination of partying too hard and darkness and probably bad eyesight or whatever. Uh, he woke up the next morning and it was Leah in his bed and not Rachel. And Laban explained that it was their law that the older daughter marry first. And didn't he assumed that Jacob knew that. And it was kind of a big assumption. It's kind of like when you buy a car anymore. But anyway, uh, the law, in a sense, was preferred over love. Jacob ended up marrying both Leah and then Rachel, producing the 12 tribes of Israel. Tamar, you might remember, was widowed by the son of Judah. Judah promised her under the law that his son Shelah would marry her and produce a child to inherit her deceased husband's estate. But Judah reneged on his promise. Tamar ended up dressing herself as a prostitute and slept with Judah. When he found out Tamar, his widowed daughter-in-law, was pregnant, he wanted to kill her 
under the law. Tamar produced evidence that Judah was the father of the child she bore. He had deferred keeping the law. Now he could only defend her for keeping the law, even though she had done so deviously. And so, so these guys, they're always working, kind of trying to work within the law, but they're twisting it and they're, they're really kind of using it to their own advantage. Um, and so in Jacob's marriage to Leah and Rachel, the law was preferred over love. In Tamar's relationship to Judah, the law was deferred because there was no love. But now, in Boaz's marriage to Ruth, love triumphed within the law. And so this really was a remarkable transaction in the history of Israel. Boaz overcame the law to become Ruth's redeemer. He overcame the law not by disregarding it, but by fulfilling it to the letter. The law was an obstacle to his love that must first be fulfilled before his love could be fulfilled. God's law was and is an obstacle to his love for you. And we can't get around that. As much as we like to tell people that God is love, uh, God also is holy and pure and righteous. And he can't overlook that we are lawbreakers. God requires that you and I keep his law and that we keep it perfectly in order to stand in his presence. Since none of us can keep God's law, we're in trouble. God's law has the effect of revealing how far short you are of ever keeping it because God's law exposes your indwelling sin. I love Romans 7 where it says, Paul's writing, he says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. The Apostle Paul wrote those words for all of us. He thought he could find spiritual life until he measured himself by God's law. When he looked at the law, the law exposed his indwelling sin nature. And rather than finding life, he found that he was spiritually dead. It only served to condemn him. And so I'm all for putting the Ten Commandments everywhere. As long as we understand that we're not keeping them. Uh, they are to expose to people how far short they fall of God's perfect standard. And so I'm supposed to look at the law and have the fear of God knowing that I'm condemned under the law. Uh, As glorious as they are, as wonderful. I mean, we talked Sunday about how Moses went and got the law and his face was glowing. And it's, it's glorious to see the character of God revealed. But how far short you and I fall of of ever keeping God's law. Uh, and if if we can't keep God's law, uh, we're never going to get to heaven. And so that's the problem. God loves you, but his law condemns you. He cannot disregard his law in his love for you. The law becomes an obstacle to his love. And so he must somehow fulfill his law before he can fulfill his love for you. And the solution is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And uh, that that's the only possible solution. The more you understand the simplicity of the gospel, the more you realize that not only it is a solution, it is the only possible solution. The fact that um, the nature of man is such that only God becoming a man can save us. And so any other religion, any other philosophy, any other system of thought, Uh, any scientific approach, any philosophical approach, any approach that doesn't have God becoming man to satisfy the demands of the righteousness of God falls short. And, And that's just the nature of things. That's just the way things are built. And so Jesus comes, he perfectly keeps God's law, 
fulfills the law on our behalf, and that clears away the obstacle that God's law presented that he might act upon his love as our kinsman redeemer. And so in Ruth chapter 4, the nearer kinsman is never given a name. It's very interesting. We can give him a name. His name is God's law. He represents God's law, which is an obstacle to God redeeming you. Just as there were ten witnesses to his claim upon Ruth, there are ten witnesses to God's law and its claim upon you, the Ten Commandments. The nearer kinsman was unable to redeem Ruth. The law is unable to redeem you. Ruth would have been left a desolate, impoverished widow under the law were it not for Boaz. You would have been left a desolate, impoverished sinner under the law were it not for Jesus. The nearer kinsman relinquished his claim, handling, handing excuse me, Boaz his sandal. When you come to Jesus, the law relinquishes its claim against you, and your feet, the Bible says, are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so there's all of these wonderful connections and images in this real story. I mean, this really happened. This isn't a myth. It's not a fable. It's, it's, it's not a way of presenting things. God was able to work into this amazing story the fabric of redemption so that we would see the romance that's involved with it. Uh, and, and I love, you know, I always have a hard time talking about this because I'm not a particularly romantic person. Uh, you know, I, I don't know too many guys who are really, I would say, are romantic. And, you know, we have to really work on it. And, uh, uh, well, I'll leave that alone. But anyway, so I don't, you know, when I mention romance, I don't consider myself the king of romance or anything like that. And, and if, it's a good thing my wife is in her head would be bobbing up and down, you know, and stuff. But, but I am, from a pastoral standpoint, more and more I've been recognizing romance over the years in Scripture. And, and I think you have to have kind of an eye for romance. This coming Sunday, we're going to see the two on the road to Emmaus. And they're walking along and Jesus, you know, all of a sudden is just walking with them. And, and uh, he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? Uh, don't you know? Where have you been, stranger? You know, and they tell him how they thought Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel, but now he's dead. And, and Jesus kind of rebukes him and then he gives him a Bible study. He talks to him about how the Savior had to suffer before he could reign. And, and then the most interesting part of the story to me is that he would have gone on, it says. And he wasn't goofing around. He wasn't deceiving them. He just the story says he was just going to keep walking and they constrained him to stay. They, they urged upon him to stay and, and almost forced him to come in and, and have supper with him. And then once they were in the house, Jesus began to break bread and something ha- something about the way Jesus broke bread. Maybe it's, you know, the feeding of the 5,000 or something, or, or maybe it was just that moment God chose. Their eyes were open. They knew it was Jesus and then he was gone and they ran back to Jerusalem to tell the others. And it's, it's very, it, it's, it's it, obviously the story is a dramatic, wonderful story, but it's a romantic story. It, those are kind of, you know, those are the things that lovers do. They, they act like they have to leave, but they don't want to leave. And, and they, oh, no, please stay. Just five more minutes, you know, just, just have bread with me, you know, and that kind of a thing. And pretty soon it's four o'clock in the morning, you know, and, and, and you're just because you're in love and you, you constrain that other person because they're, and it said their hearts were burning within them. And it's a very passionate story. And, and, and there's a lot of this kind of romance in Scripture we don't really see it for what it is. And that's why I really love the book of Ruth, because God says, sure, I redeemed you and it's all very legal and proper and it's sealed and there's sandals being exchanged and, you know, all the stuff that takes place, Birkenstocks or whatever they wore back then. 
All this is going on, and, uh, and yet God says, don't forget there's a passion to it. There's a, there's a passionate element to it. And so Jesus overcomes the law, becomes our Redeemer. What the law could not do for you in redeeming you, Jesus does for you. In order to overcome the law, Jesus had to first come under the law. And that's why He had to be born a man. Jesus was God come in human flesh, born of a virgin, so as not to inherit a sin nature from any human father. Only such a person could be both kinsman and redeemer for the human race. Now, the remaining verses of Ruth tell of her wedding to Boaz and of her son Obed. They established the people through which Jesus would eventually be born. This is like a, a great uh, ending to this story. Boaz and Ruth are in the line of the Messiah. They are the, they are the physical people through whom Jesus would eventually be born. The very story that most perfectly describes Jesus as your Redeemer also establishes His human genealogy as your kinsman. This stuff, you can't make up this stuff. I mean, really. I mean, if God didn't write this, uh, no one could have written a story like this. And so in verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Man, I tell you, these people really knew how to pronounce a blessing. I mean, they, they, we have two phenomenal blessings here in this chapter. And, and I mean, these are the kind of people you want around you, they, you know, to encourage you and say nice things to you. Uh, a guy gets married. They compare him to Jacob and Perez. A woman gets pregnant and they see the baby as becoming famous in all Israel. I mean, this is fantastic stuff. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name saying... There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Uh, okay, maybe this is better to just have your neighbors name your kids. Maybe there wouldn't be so many kids with the same name, you know. And, and uh, but uh, whatever. I mean, this is everybody's just excited about what's happening, and so they gave him a name, and the name stuck, uh, and he was indeed a blessing. He was a blessing to Boaz and Ruth as they entered into partnership with God, raising him as unto the Lord. Uh, Obed was a blessing to Naomi in several ways. It says he restored her life in a way that only grandchildren can. I mean, Naomi had had a pretty rough life. Uh, you know, down in Moab, I don't know if that's even her idea, probably not. You know, her husband leads her down to Moab with her boys. They all die I mean, it's bad enough to be a widow in Israel, to be a widow, an Israelite widow in Moab with two Moabite daughter-in-laws who are just as destitute as you. I mean, she's, she's in terrible shape, crawls back to Bethlehem. People just, I mean, you can imagine what people in a small town would have said, you know, about her return. When we looked at that chapter, we saw, I mean, it was, the paraphrase was, the years have not been kind to Naomi. I mean, you know, you... Some of you have gone to reunions and, and you've seen some of those people, you know. None of you are those people, luckily, but you know, I've gone to a few reunions I, and, and uh, gosh, man, wow, you're, I mean, you want to just say, man, you are wasted. You know, what have you been doing, you know, and 
you know, I mean, you know that they've got to, they, they have to have a meth lab in their house, I mean, to look that bad. You know, it just, it just, they're, they're breathing the fumes 24-7 or something. I mean, some people are just out there. And, I'm, you know, they just, some people just waste their life. I mean, some people look at them and say, man, that, there's a lot of hard living there. A lot of worry, a lot of anxiety. Some people age before their time. And, and Naomi, I mean, her life was a disaster up until this episode. And so now she could rejoice and, and uh, I mean, it's just amazing. And, and, you know, we, the problem we have is that we don't see the end of our life. We only see the part of our life that, that we want to focus on. And uh, sometimes our life is going okay and we, you know, we're happy with that. Uh, other times we're, we're struggling and, and uh, you know, we just have to wait and see how everything's going to work out. And God's promised us that everything's going to work out for our good and His glory and, and we just need to believe that. Obed was a blessing to Bethlehem in that the great king of Israel, David, would descend from him. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And if we go from Ruth into 1 Samuel, we'll begin to see the career of King David. And Obed was a blessing to the whole world in that David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be born from his family. Um, so again, another good name. I love to do this. Obed would be a great name. Great boy's name. This is one of the greatest boys in the Bible, Obed. And uh, I don't know, anybody know anyone named Obed? No? Huh? <laughs> Quit playing your Jedi mind tricks on me. <laughs> they will not work here. Yeah, it's Obed-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, I'm sure that's... But... Uh, Obed would be, I mean, you know, it's still, I mean, we, why do we prefer, and I, I mean, there's some Bible, you know the names I'm talking about, there's some Bible boy names that we prefer quite a bit over others, and, and uh, I think Obed would be good, really. If I had it to do over again, it could be little Obed. I might just start calling Gene Obed. In fact, why don't you do that when he comes back? You know, we tried calling him Gennaro so that we didn't have to get confused on the phone and stuff when people call, and nobody went for that, you know. And, and even, even people that don't know us, he would say, you know, call and ask for Gennaro, and they still ask for Gene. I guess they can't figure out, they've never heard of anybody named Gennaro. You know, it's famous in Italy, but it's nothing here, you know, and stuff. So maybe we'll just go completely Obed on him and... Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nation. And Nation begot Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed. And Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. The Moabites were not to enter the congregation of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. But the story of this Moabite closes with a ten-generation genealogy that climaxes with the great name of David. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we saw this a lot in the book of Joshua. But we see it here that, that there's a way that grace can always be appealed to. Uh, we, we saw it in the life of Ruth. Ruth had no reason to think that she would be respected or received in Israel or that even the God of Israel would accept and receive her. And yet she... Uh, she said, wherever you go, I will go. I'll serve your God. She had some inkling of the grace of God that could overcome uh, this. And, and, she, um, and we see that here. 
Jesus came under the law to become your redeemer. As you read again in Galatians 4, I already quoted this. It says, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In God the Father's perfect timing, God the Son was sent from heaven to earth, born unto the Virgin Mary. Jesus was fully man and he was fully God. He had to be fully God for his sacrifice to have value in heaven. He had to be fully man in order to be a substitute for all men. He had to be God to have the power of a savior. And he had to be man to have the position of a substitute. Only a God man can save anybody. And so anybody who comes to your door or rides a bicycle or however they get to you, (laughs) however they get to you uh, to give you their information, unless they're talking about Jesus, the God man, uh, then they're denying Christ and they're not Christians. And, and you can't be saved and no one can be saved unless Jesus is both God and man at the same time. Jesus was born under the law. He was under obligation to obey and be judged by God's perfect law. Unlike any other person, Jew or Gentile, he satisfied the requirements of the law by living in perfect obedience to it. Because he lived in perfect obedience, he is able to redeem all others who were under the law but not obedient to it, provided they believe in him as their substitute. And he bore the curse of the law. On the cross, he took upon himself the sins of the whole human race. He did this, giving his life as a ransom for many, redeeming all who trust in him as Savior and substitute by grace through faith. Not only, as I said, there is no other plan of salvation, there is no other possible plan of salvation. And, and I kind of I, I enjoy now looking back on my study of philosophy and psychology and, uh, you know, when I was younger and, and different things like this, because it's always interesting to me to see what people come up with as a possible way. They wouldn't call it salvation, but, uh, you know, of you know, whether they call it self-actualization or getting to heaven or whatever they call it. I mean, really, all these philosophies and isms, they're all about discovering who you are as a human being, living a higher life, living the best life possible, however they want to put it. And it's, it's really interesting and fascinating to see how they deal with the problem of, of sin and evil, whether they ignore it, whether they think that, you know, you can overcome it by rules and regulations or sacrifice or whatever. And once you're a Christian, from a Christian standpoint, you realize the depth of it and, and how, permeate, how it permeates all of society. It's, it's ridiculous to think that there's any other way that you could be saved. Uh, and, and just from a logical standpoint, I've, I've said this before, and I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you know, if you're God, you, you know, you're thinking, okay, here's what we can do. Uh, mankind will sin, and uh, Jesus, you're going to become a man, and you're going to live for... 33 years in perfect obedience to my law, which is going to be a bummer in and of itself, you know, going from heaven to earth and just humbling yourself and setting aside temporarily the use of your deity and and divine powers and just living as a man filled with the spirit. But and then you're going to be rejected and killed and crucified and all this stuff. And and we'll do that. and, And that will save people or they can just be generally nice people and they can be say whichever whichever way they want to go. That'll be fine. What do you guys think about that? Is that a good plan or what? Well, it's a crazy plan. I mean, if, if, if Jesus doesn't have to die and rise from the dead, then, then why does he do it? And, and so this is the only way to do it. And so you and I were born, sold as slaves to sin and needing a redeemer. 
Only a near kinsman who filled the law could qualify to redeem us. Only a near kinsman who filled the law and who could pay the price could redeem us. Only Jesus could be our kinsman redeemer. And so in any way you want to look at it, that's the way it has to be. Ruth is an altogether remarkable book. It may be one of the most important books in the whole Bible. It, in it alone, among all the books of the Bible, do you find the work of the kinsman redeemer illustrated. You see it in the law. You kind of understand it from a legal standpoint. Those of us who own property, buy and sell property or whatever, we, we kind of can follow the flow of it. But we don't really understand it until we read this book. J. Vernon McGee writes this, and I quote, he says, In most works on redemption, very little attention, if any, is given to the person of the Redeemer. Consequently, the book of Ruth is ignored, for the person of the Redeemer is of primary importance in it. Jonathan Edwards absolutely ignores Boaz as a type of Christ in his work on redemption. Strong in his systematic theology does not even allude to Boaz as a type of Christ. There is no reference in the book of Ruth in his entire work on theology. John Calvin in the Institutes makes no reference to Ruth when contemplating redemption. In any biblical history of redemption, there ought to be a reference to Boaz in the book of Ruth. Now, this isn't, you know, I quoted McGee because it's not to put down any of these gentlemen or anyone else. It's just to say that we have a tremendous tendency to overlook these romantic, passionate narratives in favor of things that are more logical and analytical. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I have a tendency to be more of an analytical person, more of a linear thinker. You know, everything has to kind of line up right and, and fall into place. And that's why this is a good reminder. We all need this kind of romance literature. We all need this reminder. Uh, and, and you would expect that, actually, I think of, uh, any thought of redemption, if you're going to write about redemption as a doctrine, you really should start with the book of Ruth and then go from there. Once, once you've grasped the fact that God loves you and, and came to redeem you because of his passionate love for the human race, then you can go on and talk about the other aspects of it. And it's just very interesting that Ruth is often overlooked. It's a warning to us that we do this as human beings. We overlook these portion, this part of the nature of God in favor of things that are more logical to us. One final encouragement from the book of Ruth before we close. Ruth is found between Judges and First and Second Samuel. Judges is the book, you remember, where there was no king over Israel. First Samuel is the book where man sets up his king God gives Saul to Israel because they asked for him. And then 2 Samuel is the book of God's king where David comes to power and establishes the kingdom in the name of the Lord. Our world today is like the time of the judges. Men will not have God to be their king. But things will get so bad in our world that the nations will cry out for a king. That king will appear. He will be man's king, but we know him as the Antichrist. After man's king has done his worst, God's king will come powerfully and fully to establish the kingdom in the name of the Lord when Jesus returns to rule and reign over the earth. In the meantime, God's love has triumphed within his law. Jesus has removed the condemnation of the law against sinners so that they can know the communion of his love for them. Jesus is Boaz, we are Ruth, and our lives are the romance of redemption. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these things and wish we could dwell on them more. Uh, just Ruth is one of those books, Lord, that we'd 
really should study over and over again and read over and over again and realize, Lord, that you're talking to us through these characters, and that we're, we're really right in there on those pages, Lord, as the, uh, as the persons that you are uh, romancing and redeeming. And I pray that we, Lord, in scratching the surface, have uh, kindled a, a greater interest in it than maybe we've ever had before. And, uh, Lord, that we would be falling in love with you over and over again as we continue to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen.